Hey everyone! A quick word before this episode. As y'all know, Made for Love is a one-woman project, and to be totally frank, it's a ton of work, and I'm starting to get tired, especially because I'm just not sure it's doing much. I mean, only 19 people have reviewed it on iTunes, so basically, if you want Made for Love to keep going, please review the show or drop me a line. Let me know. It matters. Okay. Onward. You know, many of the people on the outside, they will make up stories about their husband or about their son's absence, or he's working out of state, or he's this or that, because they're ashamed. I believe the church, maybe more than any other institution, is well-poised, well-positioned to provide an antidote, a, a response to the severe public health crisis that is mass incarceration. She was obviously happy for us when we told her we were pregnant the first time, but I think she was also really sad because she was like, I'm missing this, you know? This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. This is the second half of our look at how incarceration affects families. Today, we're focusing on the people outside and on how we can help people when they are released. You'll hear some of the same voices from the last episode, but one new one. My name is Lindsay Myers, married five years, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and a kid on the way. And we also have in our house my teenage brother who goes to a local school here, and then my sister-in-law who is technically still a federal inmate, but she's on home confinement. So she lives with us until her official sentence is up. Lindsay is one of my neighbors. I quietly asked around the community for someone who could speak on this topic, and she volunteered. I arrived at her house after she dropped her kids off at school. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Lindsay is nine months pregnant. She wears her hair in a messy ponytail and laughingly admits that she almost forgot about our interview. When we need a quiet place to talk, we end up sitting on their bed upstairs with their cat Phoebe demanding attention. Extra points if you can hear the cat when you listen to the audio. My sister-in-law, Jane, is 26, and we've gotten to know her a lot over the last five or six years, most of which she spent incarcerated. My husband didn't really know his sister because they're from sort of a dysfunctional family situation, and she had gotten involved in drugs when she was pretty young, 14-ish. So from the time that they were both teenagers together... She was sort of living in a different house or not living there and all around. And they just had basically no positive relationship. Other family members had drug habits, not just Jane, which, by the way, is not her name. And so Lindsay and her husband, Taylor, were often plunged into these crisis situations with his family. Even when you have a family member who has had several different incidents with the law, because she was not the first one in her family. It kind of felt like there was like always crises and incidents happening. It still is really jarring. You know that these are the habitual patterns that some people have fallen into. And like, you know, sort of what the natural consequences are of those. But like, when you get a phone call or a text message that so-and-so is in jail or whatever, you just have that tightening of your gut and like, okay, here we go again. And it's just the feeling of instability of like, I don't know where this is going to go this time, but now I'm in crisis mode and now I have to jump. I don't feel like it really gets any easier anytime something like that happens. So what happened this time? 
she was picked up by the police for possession and distribution of a small amount of heroin. She was dealing locally, basically to keep up her own habit. So imagine going through a physically painful process at the same time that a judge is going to decide what your life is going to look like. She was going through withdrawal at the time, so she was super, super sick and very angry and ornery and, I mean, hard to be around. It's just, it's hard because you're just like, what is this young life? And how am I supposed to be responding to it? And she was sentenced to 10 years. That just felt so enormous. I can't remember if she was 18 or 19, but she was really young and it's like 10 years. This is not like she's a drug kingpin, right? She's a small town, very small, rural Western Maryland drug dealer. I'm not trying to like excuse her behavior, obviously, but am I misunderstanding the system? You know, whatever. That just seems like a lot. And it's because of like mandatory minimums and her case went from state to federal. Her public defender said sometimes they just do that. They kind of pick one and make it a federal case. And so hers got picked. So she ended up with a really long sentence of which she did not serve the full time. So she served about five years of that, and then she's on home confinement now, and then she'll be on parole. Lindsay and Taylor decided that even though Taylor and Jane didn't have much of a personal relationship, they had to start visiting her in prison. When she started her prison sentence, we were kind of like, okay, well, maybe we should visit her, you know, because this is our family member. I'm not really totally sure what pushed us other than, like, total obligation, but we ended up visiting her every six to eight weeks, roughly, over those five years. Jane was in a low-security prison with two very different populations. She was at something called a federal prison camp, the lowest level of security, which was awesome. There were sort of two types of inmates there. There were low-level drug offenders like herself, and then there was white-collar crime. (laughs) So... It was like all of these old ladies who had like embezzled thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to their company. And then all of these 19 year olds struggling with heroin addiction. (laughs) And um, so the dynamic of the prison was really interesting. And while there's a lot of talk about how the prison system is not well set up to rehabilitate people, which is true, it was actually pretty helpful for Jane in some ways. She was basically really lucky to be pulled out of that sphere when she was, because it really saved her life, I think. I don't think she would be alive if she hadn't been arrested. If someone has actually been rehabilitated by the way the prison system is set up, you read all these things and hear all these stories about how it's not very rehabilitative, and I think it isn't for a lot of people. She has whatever going on with her that it really did help her. And so once she went in, even after like a year, You could just totally see the difference in her and the way she was talking and the plans she was laying for herself. The siblings were finally able to get to know each other as people. Over those five years and those three or four hour visits that were every two months, say, we really became basically friends with her. So I got to know her. She's just awesome. She's super level-headed, very wise. She's really good at seeing sort of the root of a problem and listening. It's like we are, you know, using her as therapy. (laughs) She's very good at organizing things. And she's just like a cool person to know and be around that we didn't even know. We didn't know that's who she was. And I don't think she knew either because she was just so basically taken over by her addiction. 
So let's go visit Jane. Drive to the prison, park your car, fill out all this paperwork that you don't have XYZ weapons or paraphernalia on you. And then you go to this little brick building, the visiting center, that has basically crappy doctor's office chairs facing each other and some tables in between and a bunch of vending machines and microwaves. So they have food that you microwave from a vending machine. It was horrible. It smelled horrible. The whole place smelled like microwave hot dogs. And then the inmates were able to visit their families there. You could hug. They would have cards. You could play cards or... It was not like sort of you see in a movie where you're sitting across a table, a guard standing next to you, and there were guards throughout the center, but generally it was like a very noisy place, especially around holidays. A lot of the women had children at home, and so their families would bring them. We were about five or six hours away, but some people were like 10 or 12 hours away, and so they couldn't visit very often, so they would bring large groups. I'm trying to think of like a good analogy for it. Almost like a um, not comfortable lounge area in like a nursing home or something. There's lots of people there and lots of activity, except there's no comforting slogans on the wall, you know? Fake plants, it's like pretty sterile. There's no privacy. Oh yeah, there's absolutely no privacy. She had to be like strip searched when she left. Obviously in prison, you have no say over what is happening. But even visitors are subjected to this lack of explanation. One of the frustrating things is how arbitrary things were. Over the five years we were visiting, the rules just kind of kept arbitrarily changing about what you could do there. When we first got there, there was this really nice little kids' nursery where the moms could go in and do like little activities with their kids, and there was tons of books little crafts, cribs to put babies down for naps. Of course, everything's stamped with a stamp that says like, property of the US government. But then that got taken away and it was never said why. And then they had a little outdoor area. You could go outside and you could walk around this little like grassy area and they had a swing set. And one time we came and you just couldn't go out there anymore. There's just random things like that. Like they have all these rules about how you can dress to go in. You can't wear open-toed shoes, for example. You have to put baby wipes in a Ziploc bag. But then sometimes you didn't. It was just so arbitrary. There's so many little things like that, and it really depended on who was the guard that day and what decision had been made. I guess it feels arbitrary because the inmates were never, almost never given reasons why anything happened. Jane wasn't in prison for that long. But if you think about all the skills that you learn slowly in your early 20s, it's really significant. She basically missed that early adulthood. So she can't drive. She doesn't know how to cook. She's never had a bank account. She doesn't know about budgeting. And there are certain programs that have sort of taught her that, but that seems like a place where it would be easy for Christians to contribute. And maybe you just need someone to organize it and it could fall into a church. There are jobs in prison, but they're really strange. They pay like five cents an hour. I don't really understand why they do that. It's very strange. And basically all of it has to go to like her reparations that she has to pay. It's not like she has zero 
skills related to economy because there, there are some like complex economic systems that develop in these closed societies. Things equal other things. There's like this trading system. And so she was often trading for yarn because she learned to knit in prison because she said it's so incredibly boring. You have to pick up some kind of hobby or you just go totally insane. You just have so much time to do nothing all day. And so she learned to crochet first and knit now and she's amazing. She, she knitted that little elephant over there. Yeah, yeah. When the time was approaching for Jane to be able to leave, Lindsay and Taylor gave a lot of thought and prayer about what would happen next. So when we first invited her to live with us, it was a couple of years ago. One, we live in a city, so there's more job opportunities. Two, we didn't, and she didn't feel like this either. We thought if she went back to the environment she was in, it's just risky. They talked with Jane about this idea for some time so they could all get used to it. For example, what boundaries might there be? It wasn't like Taylor and I drove to the prison and were like, today we will talk about boundaries with Jane. But it would kind of organically come up because I think she was nervous too that she would not fit in or be frustrating to us. So when it came up, we sort of took advantage and we would have these conversations. As the day got closer, reality was hitting Lindsay. When it's three years or two years away, you're like, this will be great. And then I felt really guilty because as I grew closer, I was like getting kind of cold feet. She is an addict. I have these little kids. What do we do if things go wrong? We have to have a plan in place. And also just what is it going to do to have someone in our house We have like our little dynamic. How does having somebody else there change that? It was new territory for us too. I think you'd have to be made of wood to not feel anxious about all of that. I think it was just this sort of spiritual hesitancy I had. And when we were praying about asking her to live with us, all of the kind of consolation we received, it's just like anyone might get a little bit scared before a wedding or something like that. You just have to remember, I felt really confirmed in prayer about this earlier, and I just have to power through. And it turns out that that was true. Of course, there are growing pains, but generally, it's been really nice to have another family member here. We're going to come back to Lindsay in a bit. But right now, we're going to hear about Joseph House, which is a ministry for people who get out of prison and don't have a Lindsay and Taylor to go to. When I arrived here as bishop in August 2017, we had several of our priests and almost all of our deacons and many other lay people who are very involved in prison ministry. And when I came, I think they heard that I had had some experience working as a chaplain in prisons and certainly have this love for prison ministry. That kind of touched something in some of them, particularly in one of our priests, Father Dustin Fedden, who came to me shortly after I arrived, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about having a place, a ministry, for people who have been incarcerated and who are released, who have nowhere to go, who need a place to land in, you know, a place in which to live and hopefully grow and stay away from their old way of life. And so Joseph House was born. This is Bishop Bill Walk of Pensacola, Tallahassee. Joseph House got off the ground with his support. I think one of the biggest problems when someone comes out of jail or prison is that they have no choice but to go right back into the same environment to be with the same friends and maybe family members and people who helped to get them in trouble in the first place. We see this in in the high rate of recidivism in so many people, that they go right back to their old way of life, and soon they find themselves right back in prison. Remember, that's exactly what Lindsay and Taylor knew instinctively. 
So what we want to do is break that cycle to provide a place for at least some people to come to be surrounded by a community that loves them, to be in a place that is perhaps far away from the place in which they lived and, and where they found themselves in trouble, to help them to learn skills, to grow and work, save money, get a place on their own, etc. To break that cycle, it's really important to have a place like Joseph House where people can can learn some skills and, and move on with their lives after doing their time in jail or prison. Probably the great cause of recidivism, of guys reoffending, going back out committing crimes again, is because they have experienced a great state of helplessness, of a lack of resources. So in order to survive, they find themselves getting reconnected with underground criminal activities. And it's more of a matter of survival, less a matter of some type of deep-seated sociopathology. This is Father Dustin Fedden. Father Dustin Fedden, the executive director at Joseph House. So why is it called Joseph House? Based off the story of the Old Testament, Joseph, who himself was enslaved and incarcerated and came through a lot of family strife and really tragic situations, but who never lost capacity to dream. So we want at Joseph House to create a space, an environment where it is easy for these men to begin to dream again about their lives and what they want to do with their lives, the lives that God has given them, the desires that God has given them. One of the main goals in post-incarceration ministry is to meet people's basic needs. So many of criminal activity actually stems from not only poverty, but of fear of being a victim. So they will do things to defend themselves and they'll do it in exaggerated ways. Or they will try to survive by getting caught up in drugs again and and whatever else. And so the best way to prevent recidivism, prevent folks from reoffending, is to give them a space where not only do they feel safe, but that their needs are being met. They don't need to go back into this kind of survival mode that oftentimes leads to dangerous and risky actions and behaviors. So if we can create a space where their needs are met, where they feel safe and engaged, where they can begin to imagine a new life and new possibilities, then I think dramatically the chances of recidivism drop. Joseph House sets clear rules for people to follow. At Joseph House, because we believe in the dignity of every human person and the dignity of the community of people that will be here, we do have clear boundaries. So we have boundaries, first and foremost, about the respect of each person, not only our residents, but our volunteers. We really can't tolerate any explicit acts of of violence or threats of violence. In order for any community to thrive, there has to be a sense of safety and of peace. And so we, we have to ensure the safety of all of the people, all of those involved in Joseph House. Another part of Joseph House is keeping out temptation. We also are very cognizant of the realities of addictions and of drug abuse and alcohol abuse, which even for guys that have been in for 30 years, they may have never had alcohol or drugs while they were incarcerated. But so often, because they come back into stressful environments, those addictions will resurface. So uh, guys that have, may have been clean for decades may come back out and right away they're craving alcohol and drugs. So we have a prohibition of drugs and alcohol 
within our community. And that's there not only for the health and well-being of each of our residents, but it's also, again, for the community, the sake of the community, because one thing I've learned is that where there are people that have been traumatized, that have gone through extremely emotional and, and physical experiences of challenges and limitations, that drinking and, and drugs can be a way of escape. But what it ends up doing is it creates more drama in the house. All of the rules at Joseph House are meant to help the men that are there to become their full selves. I take very seriously that each of these men, each one has a vocation that is no different in many ways than my vocation or anyone's vocation, which is a call to holiness, a call to fulfill the plans that God has given them. And we at Joseph House want to create an environment, a community that makes it easy for them to begin to dream those dreams again. Here's an example of a person who is released from prison with nowhere to go. We had a a young gentleman uh, at the age of 24 who was left directly out of solitary confinement to the bus station. So he was in the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel in Florida's correctional facility system and was released out of solitary confinement and was put on a bus and sent away and was essentially homeless. Thankfully, this time, the church was there. So we, myself, and asked actually a few parishioners, lay people, to go and to meet this individual at the bus station because it was a Sunday morning and I had mass. So we had these parishioners who went and picked up this young man that I had been visiting in solitary confinement, took him out to eat to a buffet, shared a meal with him, and, and then took him to a coffee shop. And the first things that we did eventually was getting him clothes and making sure that we checked out his account because he had roughly right about $40. That was all he had when he left solitary confinement. So let's go back now to Lindsay and Jane. How's it going? Actually, it's been really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there are things like it used to be at 7.15, we would shut the door to the kids' room and it was just like, oh my God this is our time like everything's quiet we can do what we want and now my brother makes a lot of random noise because he's a teenage boy and I guess they just do this he's like always clapping and doing weird dances and bringing down his homework and being like can you quiz me on this and and Jane wants companionship in society so she wants to sit down and knit and talk to us and if we're watching a show do that kind of thing there's just you know you can't be like Sorry, this is my time now. I've had a really hard day with my children, um, so I'm going to need you to go up to your room. You know, she's an adult. I can't, like, send her away. So it's just been, it's been interesting sort of adjusting to that. It's been eye-opening for Lindsay to watch Jane jump through so many hoops. Having seen what my sister-in-law went through, living in a halfway house, and then being expected to meet these requirements to leave the halfway house to go to home confinement. Like she had to get a job and do all these things. That's totally fine. I think that's good. But she really struggled to be able to do that because of the way that the DOG sets it up. So for example, like there's no internet at the halfway house, but you need the internet to get a job. And you have to get passes for everything. She has to get a pass to go to this little tiny library that has a computer that she has to wait to use for 30 minutes so she can use the computer to set up this interview and say like, okay, I tentatively, I think this is going to work. I have to go request a pass to make sure this time works. 
go back to the halfway house, put her passes in, request another pass for a couple of days to go back to the library <laughs> to check her email. It's so crazy. And then the whole time you're like, should I tell them I'm a felon? Right? Do I do I say, hey, this is going to take me a, a while to coordinate because, you know, I can't communicate with you unless I have permission? Luckily with her job, the woman was uh, aware and she's been awesome. She's just like, okay, you're in prison. I don't really care what you did. Can you show up to work and be reliable? You can't start a life without a job, y'all. And people like Dane often have to admit to being a felon right on their applications, which has to hurt their chances. I really understand from the employer's perspective why you might be hesitant. But then, you know, personally, I'm like, but, but Jane is so awesome. And like, why can't you just hire her? And having missed out on years of family life and skill building and friend making, it's really hard. There are so many things that are depressing about your life once you have a felony. My sister-in-law can't vote ever again. Basically, you're a second-class citizen when you come back from a federal conviction. And there's so many hurdles in the way of being able to live a functioning life again, even if you really want to. I don't think people are aware of that. And I think a lot of Christians, if they were aware, would be like, oh, I'm sure I can can help in some way. We talked about Lindsay and Taylor's getting support from the church. In some ways, we were supported by the church really well on an individual level, like our pastor at our parish. He just was really good about, especially with my husband, like meeting with my husband if he ever wanted to talk. And and when he came to our church, he started to initiate more social programs that were in the realm. Like we did this thing in the winter where you like give homeless men a place to stay for a week. Definitely overlap with like the types of people that my sister was in prison with and who she probably would have become. That felt good that there was that acknowledgement of this population that people don't want to talk about, even though it wasn't directly about inmates or people who are incarcerated. And the members of our Catholic community are just incredible. As with so many things, there are different levels. On the sort of like grassroots level, the church was really good. I will say from like the institution of the church, I don't really hear a lot about people who are incarcerated, sometimes in intentions and that kind of thing. I'm not even aware of resources or programs. I think it would help if the church was just more vocal about it, especially in an urban church like in DC. A lot of people do have family members who are incarcerated or have been, or they themselves were incarcerated, but that is a real reality. And it's kind of an embarrassing reality. We're all aware of the homeless population in the city, but are we aware of how many people can't get basic jobs because they have to check this stupid box that says they're a felon? I think I've probably said this on the podcast before, but it bears repeating. Whenever you're like, why doesn't the church do more about this? You better also ask yourself, why aren't I doing something about it? You are the church, people. I don't really know where the church fits in there, but I feel like there ought to be some things where it can be like, hey, we have on Wednesday nights these computers available, or we have this person who can work with you and do job placement, or who can help you get professional clothing or like work on social skills. I know there are people out there listening who've thought about mentoring. This would be a perfect opportunity for that. Think about getting involved. Father Dustin and Angela Burren have ideas for you. Most diocese have some individual within their offices that can connect people with prison ministries at different parishes and different social services in the area. 
Another thing that they could do is to consider being a pen pal. And they could always contact the Knights of Malta for that. If you are involved, tell people about it. I think what we need are prison volunteers, ministers, to make announcements informing folks of who's going into the prisons. And once you connect with those people that are going into the prisons, they oftentimes are the ones that can help you get the credentials, get the paperwork necessary to get approved, because most facilities in most parts of the country obviously require some type of background check and paperwork to get your registration, your volunteer number or whatever to be admitted into the prison. My best advice on this would be to say anyone that's interested in doing prison ministry in their local area is to, surprisingly enough, just call the prison or the jails in your area, ask to speak with the chaplain that is there, and then hopefully once you get a hold of the chaplain, it may take some time, may take some different calls, once you get connected with a chaplain, ask them, are there any Catholic ministries that are going into this jail or this prison? And then they can tell you who those representatives are. If you're interested in prison ministry, I would suggest that you contact the director of prison ministry at your archdiocesan office, and they will be able to help you begin to take the steps to become cleared, to enter into an institution. You may be able to offer something like help with the GED, the uh, high school grade equivalency program or maybe one of the AA programs, as well as obviously going in as a Catholic volunteer. To finish this episode, here is a little snippet from Bishop Walk. Just before this interview, I um, received a letter from an inmate in one of our state prisons on the other side of the diocese, and he wrote, and he said, our flock here in prison is at a low morale because we don't get to see you. He said, the Episcopalians have seen their bishop three times already, but we still haven't seen you. I know you're really busy, but even the Pope goes to prison. Please visit us. So um, I have visited several of our prisons. I have not been to that one yet. And you can see this almost desperation in having any visitor, but especially uh, a religious visitor, and especially the bishop. Sounds like his sheep are going to keep Bishop Bill on his toes. What I didn't read to you is, I know you are super busy, but we're all your sheep too. And it'd be nice to see you, to know that you care about us. Jesus went to the sick and suffering. Holy cow. (laughs) But anyway, that's fine. I'll go. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, except for the theme music, which is composed and produced by Michael Taylor. And then the new music is from First Com.